1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: We can no longer count on decision makers working at the international level to stop this problem because it is not going to happen. We have been holding our breath for too long, and as we do that, the world is burning. The only way to break that logjam is to empower citizens and put our hope in people power.
0: That is the voice of Dana Fisher, author of the new book, Saving Ourselves from Climate Shocks to Climate Action, published by Columbia University Press. I'm Patricia Hauser, one of the hosts for New Books in Environmental Studies, a channel in the New Books podcast network. And what follows is my discussion with Dr. Fisher, including her important insights for navigating and surviving the climate crisis. Dr. Fisher, first, I have to thank you for making time for us. I know this book is getting a lot of attention. For those that might not know you, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Sure. Hi. So
2: thank you so much for having me. First of all, it's great to be back on this podcast My name is Dana Fisher. I am currently the director for the Center for Environment, Community, and Equity at American University. I'm also a professor in the School of International Service there. My background is kind of an interesting long and winding road. I started out as an East Asian studies and environmental studies major in the 1990s in college, and I came out of college wanting to make a difference. So I went to Washington, D.C., as many of us do, to make a difference. This was back in the beginning of the first Clinton administration. I got to D.C., I did a little junior lobbying, and I moved on. I worked in an environmental think tank for a while out in Berkeley, California. And while I was there, my senior female advisor there told me that if I ever wanted to do my own work, I needed a Ph.D. because I could never run my own projects without it. So off I went to Madison, Wisconsin to do a Ph.D. in sociology. Specifically, doing environmental sociology with an amazing team of scholars there, as well as political sociology. And that's where I did my PhD. I originally had intended to go right back into kind of the, you know, public work in terms of either going to a think tank or maybe going to some sort of like a policy place. I never thought that I would end up in academia, but uh, along the way, they did a really good job in Madison. I fell in love with sociology, and I became a sociologist, like a real one. Actually, I just moved to American this year, and before that, around 20 years of my career were spent in sociology departments. First, I was at Columbia University, and then I moved down to University of Maryland in the sociology department. I just left there recently. But I also am the president of the Eastern Sociological Society right now and the chair elect over in the political sociology section of the ASA. So I continue to have a lot of my identity wrapped up in being a sociologist. But I very much am a sociologist who studies politics. And much of the work that I've done and certainly this new book is very much around kind of thinking through political decision making, political mobilization around the climate crisis. But I've done a lot of work around climate change around environmental decision making as well as around protest and activism and civic engagement that go well beyond the environment
0: the thing is it's interesting you had this this climate piece early on you were engaged in that issue and then you built this toolbox of the social science research and analysis and that leads up to 2024 where after having done your homework you are letting us know like other scientists that things are bad and they're getting worse but And I hope I don't oversimplify as I sum up one of the main points of this book. You're saying things are bad and they're getting worse. But as it gets worse, the suffering will get to a point where good things will start happening. Now,
2: absolutely. How
0: oversimplified is that?
2: There's a line in the book somewhere where I say, yes, it's bad. It's getting worse you know, the only way we're getting out of the climate crisis and to the other side is for us to save ourselves. Unfortunately, I mean, I I end the book with a very simple sentence, which is as unfair as it may seem, the future is up to us. And that's absolutely true. As I talk about in the beginning of the book, I mean, and you're you're completely right. So the book is an agglomeration of research that I've done my entire career. And I, you know, I started out as, you know, a young eager beaver sociologist sociologists coming out of a sociology program, having worked doing, you know, clean energy appropriations lobbying as, you know, before I went to do my master's degree, my PhD. So I had this kind of background in understanding the policymaking process and the kind of the points where we can apply pressure. And then I went on to study it and that was the goal. So I come back to climate change over and over again throughout my career thinking about it from both the civil society side, but also in the decision-making and stakeholder side. And this book is basically bringing together all of that. And I felt compelled to write not another academic book, but really a book that is very, very much geared towards a general audience because we're running out of time. And, you know, as I say in chapter one of the book, I'm what I call an apocalyptic optimist. That is that I believe, and there's a lot of research that backs me up here, that things are bad they're getting worse. Today, uh, one of the big European research institutes just released the temperature trends from 2023. They've analyzed all the data and it shows that 2023 was the warmest on record ever before in the world. And it also shows that we are almost at 1.5 degrees warming at this point. Granted, you know, 2023 could be an extreme or an outlier, but there's lots of evidence that 2024 is going to be even warmer. And I say that while I'm sitting here in Washington, D.C., looking out my window at rain while it's like 60 degrees out. So there's lots of evidence that things are getting worse. And as an apocalyptic optimist, I actually believe that things have to get worse before we're really going to take the kind of systemic change or we're going to make the kind of systemic change that is absolutely necessary to get us to the other side of the climate crisis. And that's what I lay out in the book, because I've been studying efforts to try to regulate greenhouse gases, and to address climate change since the 1990s. Mm. And unfortunately, even though, you know, I'd like to be able to say, oh, and we've been making progress throughout all this time, and we have been making really small incremental progress, sure. I mean, we no longer have a lot of projected estimates that the world will warm over four degrees Celsius. Yay! but it doesn't matter because that is well beyond the the livable niche for much of the world. And well below that is where all the research says we are going to see a whole bunch of social conflict coming from resource scarcity, from climate migration that's driven by resource scarcity and exposure to extreme events in the form of extreme heat, extreme drought, extreme flood. The list goes on and on. Wildfires, which are triggered by extreme drought. And all of that you know, migration, we can't even handle the migration we've got right now. So just imagine the kind of migration we're talking about and the kind of social conflict that will come as people fight for food, for water, and for places that are livable.
0: So question, how did we let it get this bad?
2: When I started out, the climate regime was created in 1992 as part of the UN um, Conference on Environment and Development, the big conference in rio which we called the earth summit way back when and i remember a bunch of my friends went to it and i was so jealous i didn't get to go down and it was like this huge festival of saving the planet and they created a whole bunch of different uh climate treaties out of it and one of them was the u.n framework convention on climate change which is the one that holds these annual meetings these conferences of the parties as well as these substa meetings which are uh at every um six month increment after the conferences of the parties to do a scientific check-in in Bonn where the secretariat is. So they started holding these meetings. And at the time that they started all of this, we were working under this idea of what's called the precautionary principle, which I talk about in the book. In fact, I wrote a whole section of it in my first book back a very long time ago, which came out of my dissertation. The precautionary principle was basically this idea that the science is predicting these bad things are going to happen. And we need to follow this precautionary principle, which is we need to change our behaviors so that the science never comes true. It was based on scientific predictions that were not based on empirical realities yet. And that's why we ended up starting talking about climate change by talking about polar bears, because people weren't yet experiencing the lived effects of climate change and the climate crisis, which we didn't call it back then at all. People were just worried about the poor polar bears. They were gonna lose their habitat, right? Well, that was a long time ago now was long enough ago, and it was enough climate negotiation rounds ago, back when we kept thinking, okay, this one is going to do it, and everybody's going to agree. And we've gone through first voluntary efforts, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, then legally binding efforts, the Kyoto Protocol, which was a failed effort. And that was what my first book was about. And I document how that is, and all the, all the big parties, the developed countries that have a lot of natural resources that they want to burn, they ended up pulling out or not following through on their commitments. We, the United States, being the worst of those. And then we have the Paris Agreement, which was basically this flexible international treaty that allows nation states to decide how they're going to address climate change. None of them have worked. And here we are. It is now 2024. And, you know, by 2030, I have seen these crazy predictions coming out of the natural science world about how much sea level rise we're going to see all over the world, as well as extreme events that lead to certain areas of the world becoming uninhabitable in six years so that's basically where we are and that's where we came from so we no longer talk about this as a precautionary principle anymore now we're talking about it as everybody is personally experiencing climate shocks in their everyday lives all of the research says it's bad it's going to get worse climate shocks are going to come with more frequency with more severity all over the world i mean This morning, I heard on NPR that uh, Florida had a tornado, and apparently there are tornadoes predicted over in the Pacific Northwest today. We're entering into the apocalyptic period.
0: So what is the answer? Will it help if each of us lowers our individual carbon footprints?
2: We cannot solve this problem with individual action alone. In fact, as I talk about in the book, this pressure to take individual action was a redirection by The vested interests, which is what we call them in the IPCC, that are basically all of the, you know, fossil fuel interests. And that goes well beyond just those companies that are doing the drilling and extraction of fossil fuels to all of the companies that are part of the fossil fuel industrial complex, if you will. And they are all very, very focused on continuing to extract fossil fuels for as long as they possibly can and make money doing so. So that means that they need to maintain demand and they need to maintain to the degree that they can political systems that they've captured through their power and access. And as a result, initially they said, okay, well, all general citizens need to take action and they need to focus on their carbon footprint, which I talk about in the book, the way that this notion of the carbon footprint is very much a tool that fossil fuel interests actually created to redirect us away from thinking about systemic changes, because as I cite, this amazing study that was done at MIT many years ago, where a class basically set out to calculate the carbon footprint, and I'm using air quotes, but you can't see them because this is a podcast, the carbon footprint of a homeless person in the United States. And what they basically found is that even somebody who is living basically on the streets and staying in shelters, etc., has a higher footprint than somebody in the developing world, just because of the system that they are using to get access to electricity, to heat, to air conditioning, to the food system, et cetera. And that is just evidence of the degree to which we need systemic change. The problem is that once we start talking about systemic change, shifting away from an infrastructure that is an energy infrastructure, that is, that fuels our lives in our homes, our lives at work, the way that we're using technology, everything has to change the way that we move ourselves around in terms of transportation. When we start thinking about that, that is a real threat to these vested interests. They have a unique access to resources and to privilege and to power. And so all of a sudden they push back. The things that they do is they redirect us. They release misinformation. There's been amazing amounts of research that talks about that. The other thing that they've been doing recently is they've been basically showing how much they are swaying The decision-making process at the international level. Look what just happened at the climate negotiations. Just last month, they wrapped up almost a month ago now, in December. And the climate negotiations were housed in a petrostate. They were led by a former fossil fuel executive. And lo and behold, even though a whole bunch of countries came to the negotiations saying they wanted to start to discuss and commit to a fossil fuel phase-out, all they got out of it was this symbolic gesturing about someday phasing out fossil fuels. That's not gonna get us to this 2030 timeline where we actually have to really make progress. And the best part about the whole thing, just if anybody's saying, oh, don't worry, next year, it's another year, which we've been saying since COP six, which was when I started going to the climate negotiations. We just finished COP 28, which is crazy. Kind way I was just gonna say, and I think it's really important for listeners to recognize that this cli- the, the, the way that the climate negotiations have evolved, has basically cut out the general people who are the ones who are able to apply pressure. And I'm, I'm, we're going to talk about that next. But in addition to that, they've given so much access to fossil fuel interests to the degree now that next year the negotiations are going to be held in another petrostate. state The negotiations are going to be taking place in Azerbaijan, which is a very, very strong petrostate, state And the person who will hold the presidency is actually currently negotiating to extract more fossil fuels from the country while he's starting to talk about holding the climate negotiation next year. Any possible capacity to believe that the climate regime can get us to a fossil fuel phase out in the timeline that is necessary to avoid the worst of the climate crisis, anybody who believes that is not paying attention to where the regime has gone. I mean, some activists I know are like, well, there's always COP30. That's two years from now. That puts us at 2026. There's just no way. We can no longer count on decision makers working at the international level to stop this problem because it is not going to happen. We have been holding our breath for too long. And as we do that, the world is burning.
1: slash nbn50 to get 50% off. And so how do you break that logjam?
2: The only way to break that logjam is to empower citizens and put our hope in people power. Because civil society is where there's still capacity to push for that change because citizens are not captured by fossil fuel interests. And the problem is that to get to a level of critical mass that is likely to be able to push for the kind of legitimation crisis that's needed to make decision-makers act, we're gonna to need to see a lot more climate shocks, a lot more stress on individual citizens who are then going to take to the streets and demand social change. I mean, there is some hope through electoral policymaking in our country, in the United States, However, one of the really disheartening kind of pieces of evidence that I bring into the book is the way that, first of all, it's important to remember that Democrats, as well as Republicans, take a lot of money from fossil fuel interests. They continue to. And as they continue to do that, one of the things that research has documented in a really impressive and unfortunate way is that a Democrat who runs on a climate platform but takes money from the fossil fuel interests, is statistically significantly more likely to vote for fossil fuel interest when it comes to any votes around climate change than they are to support the campaign pledges they made.
0: For the lay person, there are a couple of terms that are throughout the book, and one of them is just activism. From the letter writer in their house to the, the person who's standing on a street corner with a, with a sign to the person who crazy glues their foot to the stadium floor at the US Open. Is that all activism? Could you define activism?
2: So activism is engaging to affect social change. I mean, I I believe it's that broad. And I wrote something in some encyclopedia a while ago that has that kind of a broad um, definition. Now, I teach a whole class on activism. I've been teaching classes on activism for over 20 years now. And I mean, I think it's worth noting that what we talk about my whole class is about pulling apart which activism matters. Does signing your name to a petition on change.org, count the same as crazy gluing your foot, right? Mm -hmm. And the answer is no. All activism is not equal. All types of all forms of activism are not equal. Activism involves thinking through whether you're working in a collective or as an individual, you can do both. And I actually wrote about this for the recent IPCC about civic engagement and climate, People can do both. You can either act as an individual citizen. For example, we just put solar panels on our house because we were able to afford it and take advantage of tax rebates. In some ways, we could say that that's kind of a consumer activism because I basically I'm, have made a decision to, to invest in getting myself off the grid. But, you know, more in more standard ways, activism frequently is about targeting either the state, decision-making, political decision-making, or the market in terms of kind of economic actors and businesses. So you can be a consumer activist by deciding only to buy organic milk. You can be an activist who is voting only for people who take a fossil fuel pledge. Activism runs from these kind of very insider types of institutional actions where we work within the system to ways that are working without the system. They're trying to pressure the system to change because... We don't believe it's working. And that's a lot of these outsider tactics that are not legally permitted, that are not necessarily seen as part of the political system. And that's where civil disobedience falls, as well as other types of protests. Certainly crazy glue, throwing food, throwing paint and, you know, bird dogging. We're going to be seeing a bunch of that later this week Well, a bunch of activists are going to New Hampshire to disrupt Joe Manchin's address that he's doing there, which people are saying is part of his initial efforts to run as a third party candidate for the election this year. All of those things count as activism.
0: In so, an ideal world, what would activism look like that changes the momentum on climate? That's
2: issue? a great question. And I, I, I love that question. I get that question a lot. And here's the deal is that I, so uh, I believe that it takes all kinds of activism. It takes us acting individually in our lives as well as collectively in our communities, both through the political system and institutional systems we exist in, but also putting pressure outside so that our elected officials and those in power recognize that we also are the ones who should be driving the ship. I think it takes all of the above and I think everybody should be engaging however they personally are most comfortable, but we're not getting to the other side of the climate crisis without everything. It's an all hands on deck type of a moment. And I realize I'm using a lot of boat metaphors right now. It's because maybe we're having flooding here. I'm not sure.
0: (laughs) Just if you could just throw another definition out there, just because it becomes elusive when people start hearing about systemic change. Could you define systemic change?
2: Uh, Systemic change is all about changing the systems that fuel and provide energy for everything that we do in our entire lives. And I talk about this in the book. In the United States, the system that fuels our lives includes both electricity, which is fueled predominantly by fossil fuels still, as well as our transportation systems. So the electrical system makes it possible for us to turn on the lights and use our computers. Transportation system makes it possible for us not only to move ourselves around, but it also is the ability to transport all of the goods that we need that, you know, make it possible to have the holidays or to get food. And all of those things are reliant on fossil fuels right now. Those systems have to change. So that involves both the electrical grid changing and shifting over to more renewable and cleaner energy that is not basically involving burning something that releases greenhouse gases into the atmosphere but it also involves our transportation system changing now in other countries. And I like to use the example of Norway, cause I've done a bunch of research there as a, a comparison now, Norway in 90, something like 95 plus percent of all electricity is from hydroelectric power, which is clean. That means that all the homes are not burning fossil fuels to turn the lights on, and that is one of the reasons that the Norwegian government has pushed really hard to get everybody to transition to electric cars because when they turn people to electric cars, all of a sudden they're clean. Now for us in the United States, it's great for everybody to buy an electric car. I love my id 4 Now for me, since I paid to put solar panels on my house, I'm actually plugging in and charging my car with solar powered energy. However, anybody else in Maryland, if you're just on the grid, you're not getting clean energy that's fueling your electric car, which doesn't mean it's bad. It just means it's not as good and is not the full systemic change, right? Mm. And a lot of people will talk about, you know criticize the shift to electric vehicles.'ll be like, "But you're still plugging in and you're going to get coal or natural gas at, that's going to be pr- creating and providing the electricity to power your engine. And it's like, in some cases, yes, in some cases, no, it depends where you are and what your fuel source is. Yeah. But that's the systemic part of this, right? Okay. We need to change the system. The system has to change so that all the energy coming through all the plugs is cleaner and greener and doesn't create, you know, doesn't contribute to the climate crisis. Because right now, all of that matters.
0: I think that's really helpful, again, for the layperson. And as you say, you direct this book more to the person on the street audience. In just the time we have left, in the last chapter, you offer some direction for helping us escape the worst of possible climate outcomes. Can you tell us about the three key steps we can take?
2: You know, the book ends by giving advice for everybody about how to save ourselves, because, as I said, this is an all hands on deck kind of a moment where we all have to play a role. And unfortunately, and as unfair as it seems, businesses and governments are not coming and and taking the lead here, even though they should. And I wish they would. So given that there are three things we all can do, the first one is specifically geared towards people who are going to be engaging as activists and in collective mass mobilization, et cetera. And that is one, they should create community and real solidarity. And here I talk about the way that the climate movement has historically been somewhat disconnected from other movements. And I talk about the ways that, first of all, activism should be embedded in community. People should be working with people who are friends and neighbors within their communities, working together together working across different types of issues, because only when we bring labor concerns, environmental concerns, and concerns that are all about justice more broadly, economic, racial, and environmental justice together, can we create the kind of solidarity that's needed to make the kinds of changes that we're talking about here. That's number one. Number two is kind of the most interesting and historically embedded of the advice, and that is capitalizing on moral shocks that includes violence. And here I'm specifically talking to the many activists who are starting to turn to nonviolent civil disobedience because there's many, many people who respond and say, oh, well, this is gonna turn violent or these you know activists are bad because they're breaking the law. And yes, we are seeing more and more activists who are involved in climate activism breaking the law, but almost all of them are doing it in a nonviolent way. However, history tells us in history, going back to the civil rights movement, to women's suffrage, these previous movements, is that as movements continue to go on their course, when they do not achieve their goals, they get more radical, they get more confrontational. And in response to that, frequently we see law enforcement as well as counter movements emerge that are violent against them if the movements stay nonviolent. Now, I, I know a lot of these activists, I've been studying them for many years, they are committed to being Nonviolent. The problem is that that doesn't mean counter movements will will be that way. And a great example of this is if you look at white supremacists and the way that they responded to civil disobedience during the civil rights movement. Right? Many many young black activists, as well as people who were you know whites and people who were working in solidarity through Freedom Summer, et cetera, ended up getting beaten up by either counter protesters or law enforcement as they were engaging in nonviolent civil disobedience. And what I say in the book here is that there's lots of evidence that activists who have violence perpetrated against them as they're engaging in nonviolent civil disobedience need to capitalize on that because that is one of the ways to expand the movement. So that's number two. So number three is cultivating resilience. And here I'm specifically talking about social resilience and environmental resilience. And this is where people who are not comfortable or do not want to be activists in you know, in this kind of collective mobilization kind of a sense, but want to do something in their individual everyday lives to make change should be investing in thinking about how they can create opportunities for their communities to become more resilient. And that is resilient to climate shocks, resilient to extreme events, resilient also to other times when people in their communities are unhoused or are having to deal with the stress that is going to come from the climate crisis. And so there's so many ways to do this. I talk in the book about this new American Climate Corps that I've been working to do evaluations of for the yeah, administration, Yeah. but there are lots of ways that young people can get trained to help with the clean energy transition and to help build their communities to make them more resilient. And I would just encourage everybody to look for opportunities like that, because again, it's gonna take all of us working together in a way that is embedded in our communities to get us to the other side of the climate crisis.
0: So my last question is simply, what happens now? Where do you go from here? And how much does this book inform what happens going forward?
2: Well, first and foremost, I tell everybody about the book and I'm working on doing a lot of events with different environmental groups and civic groups, as well as uh, people who are trying to make a difference in their communities, decision-makers, So, I'm hoping to get the message out far and wide. At the same time, I'm trying to build at American University a center that is focusing on this kind of resilience and development of resilience through both movements, but also in communities, so that we can help to uh, train people who are ready to help lead. A lot of the work we're doing now is developing graduate programs that will help to train people to do this kind of work that focuses on community equity, but also the environment at the same time.
0: Very important tasks and an important focus. I wish you well in all of this and want to thank you again for sharing your insights with us today. Just a reminder to listeners that the book, newly released, is titled Saving Ourselves from Climate Shock to Climate Action. Thanks to Columbia University Press for reaching out to us, and many thanks to Dr. Dana Fisher.